I've got a funny little confession to make about this text that we're going to be in this. Well, I'm, to begin with, I'm really excited about this message today. Um, it is just a tremendous text of Scripture. It's extremely encouraging. Um, and it's also extremely enlightening about who Jesus is, what the gospel is who the Messiah is, what he came for. It's just a great, great passage. It's a, this is one of these passages that just makes you want to preach. Um, and I'm excited about it. Well, my confession is, um, when I was preaching through Luke before, I actually didn't preach this passage. I thought I did, but I was gone that week. And uh, somebody else filled in for me that week. But I have thought all this time that I had preached this passage, and I think part of it is because I have referenced it so much <laughs> at different times. So I've actually kind of went through it, but it's been in other sermons. So it, it was just, maybe it's just one of those things that was funny to me. But anyway, it's Luke chapter 4. We're going to go through verses 14 through 30. And I want to pray before we get started. Father, thank you once again for this Wonderful day that you have given us to be together, to look into your word. Lord, I just pray that you show us Christ today. Show us your Christ, your provision. Show us what everything is about today. Lord, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So you remember the last time I preached, we were in verses 1 through 13, and that is the temptation of Jesus. He, he had been baptized, and then he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And this was not an accident. Jesus didn't go on a nature walk and get ambushed by the devil. The Spirit actually took him intentionally into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and Jesus defeated the devil. And he did it in our place. Where Adam fell in a garden, Jesus overcame in the wilderness, in the desert. And he overcame in our place as the man by completely and totally entrusting himself to the Word of God. He could have squashed Satan like a bug. He could have called down fire from heaven and destroyed him and threw him into the lake of fire immediately, but he didn't do that. He rested himself on the Word of God, and he defeated Satan as a man. And he did it for us. He did it for us. So, when that happened, um, Jesus began... Binding the devil, taking his power. The devil was in charge of this world. He's in control of this world. And Jesus told a parable about that in Luke chapter 11. And I'm going to skip over there and read it before I get started. In Luke chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 14 through 22. And he, Jesus, was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. 
But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. Now, what happened here is Jesus has demonstrated that he has power over the devils. He, ha- he is in charge. They have to obey him. He can cast them out at will. And then in verse 20, he says, But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There's been an invasion here. The old order has been upset. The kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. Satan is the strong man that Jesus was referring to. And so after Jesus' baptism and then his subsequent defeat of the devil in the wilderness... He begins binding Satan, and he immediately begins to plunder his house. He immediately begins to plunder his house. How does he do it? How does he do this? How does he plunder Satan's house? Well, for that, I'm going to look at Mark chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 14 and 15. You don't have to turn there if you don't want um, because you, you probably know these verses by heart. He said, Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So how does Jesus plunder Satan's house? How does he plunder the strong man's house? He does it by preaching the gospel. He does it by preaching the gospel and announcing the inauguration of the kingdom of God. This old order has been upset. There is a new order. There's a new kid in town. There's a new sheriff in town. Somebody might say it, put it that way. The, so he is preaching the gospel and he's announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. So this is where we pick up in verse 14. And I'm going to go ahead and read the whole text, 14 through uh, 30, but then we'll go back and we'll work through it and we'll unpack it. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives 
and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Quite an eventful day. Jesus returns to Galilee to begin his earthly ministry. So why does he do that? Well, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a coincidence. God chose Galilee to be where Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And he actually decrees it and he proclaims it through the prophet Isaiah ahead of time in Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to be referencing Isaiah quite a bit today because that's where Jesus was reading from. Um, but you don't have to turn there. Isaiah 9, in verse 1, says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. 
So God has spoken and he has decreed, he has said that Galilee is where my Messiah is coming. My king is coming there. This is where the invasion is going to happen. God chose the darkest place. Galilee was where the invading armies came. Whenever Babylon came down through and took out Israel, and then whenever they took out Judah, this was on the north. And this is where the invading armies came in. And there was a mixture of pagans and Jews there. There was idol worship. There was all kinds of false religion there. It was a terribly dark place. And God chose the darkest place to shine the brightest light. He always chooses the darkest place to shine the brightest light. And he had decreed this in Scripture. Everything that Jesus did fulfilled the Old Testament Scriptures. Everything that he did. Because ultimately the Old Testament Scriptures were all written about him. And everything he did fulfilled them. So the name of our message today is Scripture Fulfilled. So let's begin. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Jesus preaching and teaching. All of his ministry was done in the power of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, everything Jesus did was done in the power of the Spirit. Well, you know, it's easy to throw that out there. Say, well, it's done in the power of the Spirit. You know, live a Spirit-filled life. You hear things like that. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit? I would submit to you that it means that everything Jesus said and did was governed and empowered by the Scriptures, by the Word of God. That is how you live in the power of the Spirit, is to be completely submitted to the Word of God. Jesus would say later in, in John chapter um, never mind. I lost the verse. But anyway, to live in the power of the Spirit is to live by the Scriptures. How did Jesus defeat Satan in the wilderness? In the power of the Spirit. He did it by entrusting himself completely to the Word of God. So let, let, listen to what John says in John chapter 3 and verse 34 about Jesus. John three thirty four, And he's talking about Jesus. It says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus comes speaking the words of God. What causes him to speak the words of God? The Spirit. Jesus said, the words that I've spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. The Scriptures, the Word of God, is how we live in the power of the Spirit. To operate in the power of the Spirit is to operate in complete submission to and reliance on the Word of God. That's it. That's what Jesus did. That's what it means when it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And it says, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. Now, it's interesting that the verse doesn't mention any of his miracles. I don't know if you've caught that. 
But this verse, it says that the news spread about him through all the surrounding district, but it doesn't say anything about his miracles. So the news wasn't spreading necessarily because of Jesus' signs, miraculous signs and wonders. Now, he could have done something. But the reason why the news about Jesus was spreading was the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit was driving this. And that's what the Holy Spirit is emphasizing to us in this text. And in verse 15 it says, And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So Jesus goes to the places where people gather and where the Scriptures are read, and he begins to teach. And everyone is praising him. They're all recognizing. I imagine the author of the book comes and starts teaching you what the book is about. Everyone is praising Jesus' exposition of Scripture because it's flawless. It's flawless, and everyone can recognize that. So verse 16 says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up and was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. So now he comes to Nazareth where he grew up. He enters the synagogue. He stands up to read. Now, it was customary in the synagogue on a Sabbath for seven people to read. The first one would be a priest. The second one would be a Levite. And then five other Jews who were members of the synagogue would stand up to read after that. The rabbis would stand to read the scriptures, and then they would sit down to teach about them, to teach. Um, Now, something I want to point out, it's not a coincidence where Jesus is. None of this is, there is no such thing as coincidence. Jesus has come to Nazareth for a reason. He's come to Nazareth to read what he's going to read. Verse 17, it says, And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. <coughs> and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. So the book of Isaiah was handed to him. And a book, what this actually was, it's not a book like what we think of as a book. It's a large scroll. And he would have opened or unrolled the scroll. And I was thinking about that. That might have had something to do with why they stood up to read and then sat down to teach. Because they've got to roll out this large scroll and then find what they're going to read and read it. But he would have unrolled it and he found the place that he was going to read from. It was no coincidence that it was the book of Isaiah. It was no coincidence that he was in Nazareth where people thought they knew him. Understand this. It's important to our text today. People thought they knew him there. They watched him grow up. They knew his family. They knew his parents. He probably worked on their house or made some furniture for them. They know this guy. So the book's handed to him, and he opens it. I was reading Matthew Henry's commentary on this passage. Matthew Henry comments, The books of the Old Testament were, in a manner, shut up till Christ opened them. 
Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to take the book and open the seals, for he can open not the book only, but the understanding. So he takes the book and he opens it. And what does it say? Well, let's read verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, the text that he goes to and reads is a clear announcement And it's an announcement of the power, calling, and work of a particular individual. That individual is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the promised King of Israel, the prophet that would be likened to Moses except for greater than Moses. The greater Moses, the greater David, the Messiah that was long expected in coming, this is an announcement of his coming in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. That's what he read. The text begins with the qualification and power of the Messiah. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's, his quali- that's, that's what qualifies him, and that's where his power comes from. Not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then comes the commission. He anointed or sent me to preach the gospel to the poor. Look back at Luke 3.22. Flip back a page at Jesus' baptism. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. He's anointed, he's sent. In Luke chapter 9, in verse 35, on the Mount of Transfiguration, When Jesus is up there with Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah are there, it says, Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. So Jesus comes in the power of the Spirit. That's His power and His qualification. He's commissioned. He's anointed by the Father. He's sent for a work to preach the gospel to the poor. Then we have the work. The work is to preach or proclaim. So if you preach or proclaim, you have a message. The message proclaimed is the gospel. The recipients of the message are the poor. What does that mean? Those who are poor in the things of this world. Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is sent to a particular group. He comes to preach the gospel to the poor. So then we're going to have the content of the message. 
Now, that's something interesting. Have you thought about this? Jesus is preaching the gospel. That's what it says in Mark. With that text that I read at the beginning, you know, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel and saying, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus is saying the Messiah comes to preach the gospel to the poor. What is the gospel? What exactly was the gospel that Jesus preached? Have you thought about that? He hasn't died on the cross yet. You know, we have a stunted view of the gospel in our culture. We've had so many years of uh, pragmatism and easy believism and different things like that that we basically, to a large degree, we've reduced the gospel down to a get-out-of-hell-free card. You know, it's a contract. You pray this prayer and ask Jesus into your heart, and then you get to go to heaven, right? That's the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Jesus came to preach the gospel, and he begins preaching the gospel right here. This gospel is in this text from Isaiah. So what's the first part of this gospel? Release to the captives. Release to the captives. This is going to go right along with what Paul was teaching in the equipping hour this morning. Jesus came to preach release to the captives. He didn't just come to free people from guilt or from the consequences of sin. See, a lot of times that's the gospel that we hear that, well, if, if you, you look to Jesus, you don't have to go to hell. You know, if you pray this prayer, ask Jesus into your heart or ask Jesus to save you, you don't have to go to hell. You're free from the consequences of sin. But he actually came to set free those who were held captive by the devil to do his will. That's what he came to do. Listen to John chapter 8. Verses 31 through 36. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus came, the Messiah came to set the captives free, to set free those who were held captive or enslaved by the devil to do his will. That's the first part of the gospel. What's the second part? Recovery of sight to the blind. Recovery of sight to the blind. See, Jesus didn't just come to shine a light in a dark place there in Galilee. He didn't come to shine a light in a dark place that nobody could see. You could shine the light all you want, but if people are blind, they will not see it. He actually came to restore spiritual sight to his people. 
You remember, the, I'm not going to go to it and read it, although I'm very tempted to, the story in John chapter 9 where the blind man receives his sight. Jesus heals him of his sight, and he's the Sanhedrin. They call him in, and they're just enraged because this guy's healed. And they hate it. They hate it. And they're wanting to, they're wanting to condemn Jesus, but it's kind of hard to condemn somebody that's healing people. You know, I'm making them well. And uh, they tell this blind man, they say, we know this man's a sinner. He said, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But I, this I do know. I was blind and now I see. Jesus came to restore sight to the spiritually blind, to his people. He didn't restore everybody's sight. As Paul told us this morning, he didn't come to restore everybody's sight. But he came to restore the spiritual sight to his people so that they could see the light that was shining in the dark place. He restores the spiritual sight of his people so that they can see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what he came to do. That's the second part of the gospel. And then again, the third thing, to set free those who are oppressed. Now, this is kind of interesting. He quoted from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, but this is actually a quote from Isaiah 58, 6. So Jesus is using Scripture to interpret Scripture. And he pulls in another Scripture in the middle of it from Isaiah 58, 6 as a way of explanation. So let's just read that, what it says. He says, Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. So just in case you didn't understand, the first time when I said I came to, to proclaim release to the captives, I'm actually talking about captivity to sin, bondage to wickedness, to this yoke. That's what I came to set people free from. This is the freedom the Messiah brings, is freedom from the yoke of sin. People are held captive by the devil to do his will. What does John say that Jesus came to do? He came to destroy the works of the devil. And then, here's the last part of the gospel, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. I'm going to go to Leviticus Chapter 25. And just briefly, in Leviticus 25.10, it says, You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. On this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. Now, I was very tempted to just 
overload you with scriptures about the year of Jubilee to explain it. And the Lord convicted me not to do that because it would have been information overload and, uh, and it would have taken a lot of time. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to explain to you what the year of Jubilee was. When the nation of Israel came into the promised land, God instituted the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, all the debts of all Israelites are forgiven. All your debts are forgiven on the 50th year. If you're an Israelite, it's only the people of God. Foreigners who are living there, their debts aren't forgiven. But for the people of God... On every 50th year, all the debts are forgiven, and all of the citizens who have sold themselves into bondage, who are slaves, basically, they've, they, they're indentured servants. They, have, they got in a financial bind, or they were going hungry, and they found somebody who was wealthy, and they indenture themselves to that person. They sell themselves into bondage so that they can survive. All of those slaves are set free. All of those are held in bondage, and all the debts are forgiven, and everyone's property is restored to them. I mean, it's a complete, it's just like a reset every 50th year. Well, that's a great system, isn't it? Blessed is the one who is alive during the 50th year, unless you're the guy who's loaned all the money, then it might not be uh, such a blessing, but all the debts are forgiven. Now... This is a temporal statute for the nation of Israel, and it's actually a type. It's a shadow. It's a shadow. It's a foreshadow, temporary. It happens in time and space as a temporary shadow looking forward to what Christ would do eternally for his people. God is forgiving all of the debt he, he is making it a, a clean start, completely free for all of the debt of the people of Israel on the year of Jubilee. Well, what the Messiah was going to do for his people was to bring forgiveness of all of their debt that they owe to God for their sin. All of our debts, all of our transgressions, all of our rebellion against God. In the Messiah, it's all wiped clean. It's all made new. Colossians 2.14, Paul describes it this way. He says, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Our debts are cleared. And we owed a mountain of it. But Christ is taking care of it. So, the Jubilee there is interpreted spiritually as pointing forward to our forgiveness and all of our debt being satisfied. If you don't believe in substitutionary atonement, here it is. Here it is. Christ substituted himself. We had those wages that we earned. That Paul was talking about. That debt of sin that we had accrued and those wages that we had earned for that debt, Christ has satisfied them on our behalf. The Messiah satisfies that 
and it is our jubilee. You want to know what the jubilee is? It's not about prosperity. It's not about a golden age. The jubilee is about being reconciled to God in Christ. He is our jubilee. That's the favorable year of the Lord. This is what Jesus read to him there in Nazareth. This guy that everybody knew, they watched him grow up. It says, and he closed the book, so he rolled the scroll back up. He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Everybody is watching, and they're listening intently to what he's about to say. It says, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, the text doesn't make it clear, but I would imagine that there were two things that happened immediately. For about 30 seconds, you could have probably heard a pin drop. And then there was probably a roar in that room for a period of time. He just told them, I am the Messiah. When he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he just told them, I am the Messiah. I am the true king of Israel. I am the fulfillment of the scriptures. I am the jubilee. That's what he just told them. Later on in John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus would tell the religious Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is these that testify about me. And you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You know, um, Paul tells the Corinthians, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what He told them. That does not mean that He just told the Corinthians, hey, you know, there was this carpenter guy in, in Israel, and uh, and he was a really good guy, and, and he was crucified. He died for our sins. He was the Son of God, and, and so if you'll just trust in Him, you can go to heaven when you die. That wasn't what He meant when He said that. When he said, I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, he's telling them all of these scriptures are about Jesus. And he's preaching Jesus to them from all of these scriptures. When I read the scriptures to you, I am reading them to you to point you to him. All scripture is meant to bring, to point us to Christ. And if your study of Scripture brings you up short of Christ, you're not done. You haven't gone far enough. If your proclamation of Scripture, I don't care what you get out of it. If you show someone how they can be successful from Proverbs, you're wasting your time. And you could say, well, you know, there are obscure texts in the Old Testament that I don't see how they have anything to do with Jesus. Like, you know, what does... Um, God choosing 300 men that lapped the water like a dog to, uh, to go with Gideon into battle. What's that have to do with Jesus? 
Well, the problem is, is you've taken that little text out of its context. But when you put it back in its context, and you see that these 300 men that God has chosen, God has chosen to show us that salvation is of the Lord, and not of the power of man, and that He's conquering through His Word, and through His power then you can get to Jesus in your study. That's how it all takes you to Jesus. The Scriptures have one goal. When we come to the Scriptures, whether we're coming to study, whether we're coming to listen, or whether we're coming to teach or to preach, we have one goal, and that is a greater vision of the glory of Christ. That's why we're there. That's why we're there. Now, we don't know what all Jesus said in his exposition of this text from Isaiah. The Holy Spirit, I mean, he probably said a lot of other things that weren't passed on to us as he was expositing this text. We don't know what all he said, but the Holy Spirit determined that the one thing we really need to understand about this passage, the one thing that ultimately matters to us the most is that it's all about him. That's what we need to get. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And he said this to them for a reason. He brought it to them for a reason. Let's look at verse 22. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? See, nobody can dispute his exposition. Nobody can dispute it. And they're marveling at the depth of his knowledge and his ability to communicate and to explain the Scriptures. And see, they knew him, or they thought they did. They knew he wasn't formally educated. They knew he didn't have theological training. And they can't fathom where this is coming from. They just can't fathom it. And you know what's really kind of funny about that? He just told them where it's coming from. They can't fathom where it's coming from, but he just told them. They understand what he's saying, but they only understand it on an intellectual level. He just told them, I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. I am coming to you in the power of the Spirit. This is all about me. That's where this is coming from. But they're not getting it. They're not getting it, and there's a reason why they're not. And that reason he's going to bring out in verses 23 through 27. He said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who's a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. 
So he just explained to them why they don't get it. The reason is that God is really sovereign. Election and salvation have nothing to do with your race. They don't have anything to do with your upbringing, your nationality, your family heritage. It's not the man who wills or the man who runs. They don't have anything to do with your intellect, your soft heart that you just naturally produce on your own. It's God who has mercy. The only ones who will truly receive the message and the messenger are those to whom it is sent. That's the only ones that will receive it. I'm going to read you a couple of passages by way of illustration. First one's Matthew 16. Verse, I'm going to start in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Why did Peter get it? Because he was one to whom the message was sent. And God revealed it to him. John chapter 1 for the other one. Verses 11 through 13. He came to his own. This is, this is the reason why he went to Nazareth here to make this announcement. This is an illustration of the overarching truth of he came to his own. He came to, to Nazareth. He came to Israel. He came to humanity. In all of those ways, he comes to his own. Those who are... Like him according to the flesh. He's a Nazarene. He's an Israelite. He's a human. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Who were born... Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So who did receive him? Those who were born of God. He's telling them, he said the same thing in in, uh, John chapter 10, as as he says here in Nazareth in Luke 4. He just said it a different way. In John 10, he said, you can't hear me because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. As you can imagine, this information made them really happy. We'll just look at it. In 
In verse 28 it says, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him off the cliff. Spurgeon said, Man will allow God to be anywhere except on his throne. It was true then, it's true today. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but have you ever had uh, someone who doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God get mad at you just because you do? Even without arguing with them. I've had people get fighting mad when they find out I'm a Calvinist. They don't, and it doesn't, I don't even say anything to them. They just find out, and then, man, oh, that guy's evil. I hurt him. Why? Because I refuse to bow at the altar of their will. I won't worship their false god, and they don't like it. And they get mad. And these people got really, really mad at Jesus, and they wanted to kill him. Verse 30 said, but passing through their midst, he went his way. Now, before I get into verse 30, see, that's an interesting thing about the destructive nature of sin. He just told them the greatest news there is. The greatest news in the world. I am the Messiah. I've come to set you free from bondage to sin. I have come to restore your sight. To make you whole. To clear your debts if you're my people. They refuse to believe. They refuse to believe. The best news ever. It's not like he... I mean, there's all good news here. This is not a good cop, bad cop gospel he's telling them. He doesn't even say like like Jonah, you know, yet 40 days an interval will be restored. He just tells them the good news. I am the Messiah and I have come to free you from your bondage to sin and the debt that you owe to God. To completely restore you. I'm the fulfillment of all of this. And these people are furious and they want to kill him. Because they're not his. They won't receive this good news, this gospel. That's the, that is how, it's like someone who knows they're dying from some addiction. Let's just use, and I'm not picking on you if you're a smoker, but let's just use cigarettes. Someone who has cancer, lung cancer, and they know they're dying, and they're still smoking cigarettes. I've seen it. That is the bondage that this stuff has over us. And that's the bondage that they're in. But verse 30 says, But passing through their midst, he went his way. You know, they wanted to kill him. But there's a problem here. You know what the problem is? They can't kill him because what he just told them is true. He is the Messiah. He is God. He's the king, like it or not. There's nothing you can do about it. He's come into the world. He's bound the strong man. He's plundering his house. His gospel is going forth to the nations. His people will receive it. His sheep hear his voice. That's the choice that you have today. You will do one of those two things. You'll either bow before him and worship him, be conformed to his image, or you'll rebel against him and want to kill him, 
just like those people did there. But you can't do it because he's God. He's the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of of your Christ. The truth of your scriptures that, that bring us to him. Lord, we just ask that you encourage us with this today. Give us confidence in your word. Help us to rest in the truth of who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray that you use us to point to Christ through these scriptures, that you teach us to live in the power of the Spirit, completely submitted to your word, as our Savior did. Lord, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.